A godless culture in ancient times, filled with pride, materialism, and hostility toward God. In the midst of such a culture, God provided a young leader named Daniel to model humility, courage, wisdom, faithfulness, and hope. A prime example for thriving in Babylon. Well, it's good to be back with you today. I missed you these past couple weekends. My family and I took our annual vacation, this time to visit my family. Mike's done a family in Colorado and had a nice time there, but certainly missed you. And very grateful for Brian Klein and the wonderful job that he did in my absence these past two Sundays. And also uh, grateful for our creative arts team. Don't we have a great creative arts team here that puts together videos like this? And yeah, if you look up on the windows over here. They put together these paintings, and uh, a lot of really creative people here, both on our staff team and then also a number of volunteers who serve together in this creative arts team, thinking about how we bring it all together, the message that it's not just the word, but, but it's also visual and kinesthetic elements, all of which can teach us and help us understand and apply uh, the Scriptures more fruitfully in our lives. Well, we are seeking to build a church here in which every single person matters. That's our vision statement. Every person matters, no matter someone's race or experience in life or lifestyle or background or um, whatever experience they bring to church. Wherever you are today, we pray that you would come in here today and know that you matter deeply to God and you matter deeply to us. And how we go about that, we have these four core values, which we'll speak about another time, but uh, we also have this, this mission statement that we've talked about many times here, that we are building a transformational community by growing in love with Christ and all people. That's what we're after, is a transformational community. And so one of the questions that we're always asking ourselves here at Carnegie Free is how do we live faithfully in this land, in this reality that we're in today? How do we live faithfully such that transformation for us could be possible, such that we point others toward the living Christ and transformation for them might be possible? We're entering a new series this morning in which uh, the author of our study, a man named Daniel, who's a prophet and a leader, is a man who had to ask the same question, what does it look like to transform a place that is not healthy in many, many ways. And this is a series that will go back mostly to the Old Testament, and therefore we'll look at a lot of background and history, and you will need your notebook. You will need to take notes in this. And a little bit of background here as we get in. I'd like to just set the stage for the course of this series. Daniel and his friends live in a world that's been dramatically changed. He's been taken into an exile along with tens of thousands of Jewish people who were removed from Jerusalem and removed from the southern kingdom of Judah by the Babylonians and brought into Babylon. And they uh, get taken out of the place that they knew, the only place that they've known, the only place that Daniel and his, his companions knew. And uh, they've been taken from their temple, the place of their worship, and all the religious vestiges around that, and a whole culture that was surrounded by uh, the ethic of Judaism, the culture of Judaism, and there was a comfort level in and around Jerusalem and the countryside of Judah 
that they were always familiar with, and they're transported out of that into a place that was very, very different. A fast-paced, changing world, Babylon was synonymous in the day with pride and materialism and sex and vainglory. It was uh, synonymous with cruelty, and it was a, a high-tech city, a high-tech uh, empire, a very wide, broad empire that was ahead of its time for its day. It was wealthy and it was hostile to strangers. And here's Israel now, strangers in a foreign land, and they're asking the question, how now shall we live? What does it look like to live in exile? How do we live faithfully in this foreign land that is so very different than the land that we came from in Israel? And I think it's a great question for us to ask as we think about Daniel some 2,600 years ago and the amazing, striking similarities that we will see from Daniel's day and questions that the church has to ask today. It's truly incredible, the similarities between the two. I mean, we live in a fast-paced, changing culture, do we not? It's moving quickly in various directions that are quite different that our ancestors experienced. You think about the changes in our culture, even here in, in Kearney, Nebraska. I mean, do you walk around the campus at UNK and ask, how now shall I live in this environment? UNK has changed significantly, I'm told. Or maybe you uh, turn on the news, and as you watch the newscast, or you learn about the latest shooting, or you learn about the la- latest change to a religious law that seems to further restrict religious liberty, And you say, how do I live amidst this? And uh, you talk to neighbors, and it wasn't that long ago that it was just expected that our neighbors would all go to some church. Maybe they go to a different church than we went to, but they all went to some church. And today, that's not an expectation at all, is it? You go around your neighborhood, that's, that's not the case in my neighborhood, I'm sure it isn't in your neighborhood at all. And even amongst those who do go to church frequently, it seems like they're only interested in the veneer of a cultural Christianity, not really interested in, in the deep things of a, of a personal relationship with Christ and being changed and, and, and being open to repentance and being modified by Him. So how do we live in this quick-changing culture? I think the book of Daniel will help us a great deal with that. And as we enter in, maybe you can help me out. It helps me to understand your background just a little bit, so a real quick informal poll Uh, How many of you were raised in the church that for most part on a Sunday to Sunday basis, you went to church, be it with mom or dad, would you raise your hand with me if you were raised in the church? Okay, good percentage of people in here. How many were not raised in the church? Raise your hand if you were not raised in the church. Okay, good percentage of people not raised in the church. Me too. I wasn't raised in the church either. Okay, how many people went to church but only because you went kicking and screaming because mom and dad made you? Okay. A larger percentage, almost everyone. Okay, not almost everyone, but a few people there as well. That's important for us to keep in mind, particularly as we enter into Daniel, because what I'm going to ask those of you who are raised in the church to do is suspend a little bit what you believe Daniel is about. Suspend for just a moment what you believe Daniel is mostly about. There are two common narratives that frequently drive people's perception about what Daniel is about if they were raised in the church. One is that it was an adventure story, and number two, it's a prophecy manual. Okay, so first, adventure story. 
If you were raised in a church, maybe you had this thing called flannel graph. You remember that? And uh, with flannel graph, you had this fiery furnace, and you had this lion, and you had these four boys, and they're all on a flannel board. Did you get that as a kid? Anyone? Raise your hand. Okay, I actually looked around this church for that this week. I couldn't find any. I went to Hobby Lobby and looked for it. Couldn't find any. A sure sign that culture is changing. No flannel graph available for sermon props. You know, they were vicious and they were nasty and yet at the same time soft and cuddly. That was an attempt at humor. I didn't get any laughs from that. Okay, this adventure story that we have in mind with Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and to be sure, uh, Daniel was rescued from the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rescued from the fiery furnace. But they are models for us of perseverance and of courage They are not models for us of what we can expect, okay? Because there were many more who died by the sword of Nebuchadnezzar. What we can expect is that as Babylon creeps in, we will experience more persecution and more suffering and more harm, and that's what we can expect, not uh, to go to to Daniel and say, well, because they escaped the lion's den, because they escaped the fiery furnace, that's what we should expect as well. No, God doesn't promise to save us from harm. He promises to give us courage amidst that harm. Second, Daniel is not a prophecy manual. Now, don't get me wrong. There is much prophecy in Daniel, particularly the second half of the book, and we will touch on those prophecies in the book of Daniel. They are an important part of the book, but I'll argue that they are not the main thing for us to learn from the book of Daniel. There are many prophecies there, and some of the prophecies were fulfilled uh, by the nation of Israel when it got to rebuild the temple, and others of those prophecies were, were fulfilled when Jesus came the first time, and other prophecies still will be fulfilled when Jesus returns again in glory. And we look forward to that Um, to his second coming, and I think the book of Daniel does refer to that as well. But many people treat the book of Daniel much like they treat the book of Revelation, that they read it with a newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other hand, and they read the Bible through the lens of the newspaper. Have you ever known anyone like that? They read the Bible through the lens of a newspaper, and as they do, they say, okay, the latest earthquake, the latest current event, the latest mass shooting, the European Union... What does that mean, newspaper slash Bible? What does it mean? And what does this mean for Christ's return? When is it going to happen? One of the most frequent questions that I get as a pastor is, when is Christ returning? Are we living in the last days? To which I very consistently answer, I don't know. I mean, I could guess. I could speculate a little bit, I suppose, But something gives me pause about doing that, and it's this. 100% of those who have speculated have been wrong, be it Nostradamus or Hal Lindsey or anyone else, any other supposed prophet. They have an incompletion percentage of 100%. So something gives me pause about speculating on the day or time that Christ will return. I appreciate the way Larry Osborne, a pastor with the Evangelical Free Church of America, puts it, the same network of churches that we're a part of, in his book, Thriving in Babylon, which I, of course, got the title for this sermon series from that title of the book, asked Pastor Larry's permission before doing that, and this is a helpful book as it relates to Daniel. 
But uh, he speaks about this as well and the number of times that he gets asked about Christ's return and the timing of it. And he says this, That's why I stopped making end-time predictions. I've quit trying to explain what I don't understand. I know Jesus is coming back. Of that I am quite certain. But as to exactly when and how he will work out all the nitty-gritty details, I'm still a bit foggy. So I've traded my spot on the programming committee for one on the welcoming committee. It's more in line with my pay grade. And I feel the same way. I just want to welcome Jesus well whenever he returns beyond that welcoming committee, which seems wise since Jesus himself said concerning his coming back, now about that time or about that hour, no one knows the day or the hour, not the angels nor even the Son of Man himself, but only the Father knows when Christ will be sent back to earth to return again in glory. So, I think, again, it's wise for us to say it's above our pay grade. That's not to say that we shouldn't study the prophecies in Daniel. And we will touch on them. We will study them some in this series. But they won't be the focus of our study. Because Jesus seems to be saying to us in Mark chapter 13 that you and I are on a need-to-know basis. And sorry, you don't need to know. I'm coming back when the Father tells me to come back. Instead, what he invites us to do is so much more exciting to live lives of deep, robust, moral character and integrity, to become disciples who are seeking to follow him and point others to him, that are pointing others to how we would live in a fast-changing culture that is moving away from Christ Those kinds of disciples who get on with the business of following Christ and helping others do the same today. So once again, how do we live faithfully while in exile? That's the main question I think Daniel will help us answer over the course of these next eight weeks. Let's begin today with Daniel chapter 1. And I'm going to read the entirety of this chapter. We won't do this every week, but I'm going to read the entirety of this chapter this morning because it does such a profound job of setting the stage of what we'll see from Daniel over the coming weeks, and it gives so much great background, which we need to know and understand whenever we get into uh, all of the Bible, but especially the Old Testament. Let's learn together from Daniel chapter 1. If you'd like to read it from the screen with me, you certainly can. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible, that's in the Old Testament, and uh, you can find it in your table of contents. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, listen to this description, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So he chooses the best of the best of the captives from Judah, and he brings them into his inner courts to be his servant, to be his slave, and to teach them Uh, because they're the best. They have all knowledge and skill and understanding. He teaches them the language and the ways of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. They get to eat at the king's table and of the wine that he drank. 
They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were, da were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them these new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he set, why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let your appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the other youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in, the, in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, a lot there. But let me quickly summarize a bit of this historical context. Well, what's happened is that Daniel becomes this leader in Babylon after the Jews were taken into exile from Judah, that is the southern kingdom of Israel. There's a northern kingdom that's already been captured by the Assyrians, and now the southern kingdom of Judah also gets captured, this time by the Babylonians. And Daniel and his friends and tens of thousands of others are taken into exile to Babylon, and there they are in exile, holding influence. Daniel holds influence there for 66 years. From 605 B.C. to 539 B.C., that's the time frame. And Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, was this egomaniac. He was known as vain and cruel and murderous, and he welcomed worship of himself, and he was polytheistic. Polytheistic, he worshiped many, many gods as well as himself, and welcomed others, of course, to worship himself. And uh, the city of Babylon had this, this double-tiered wall system. It was wealthy and technologically great in so many ways. And after conquering Israel's temple in Jerusalem, what Nebuchadnezzar did was take all the holy things made of gold and silver out of the temple and bring those into his temple to the god Marduk as a mockery to the god of Israel and a mockery to the people of Israel. And then the next thing he did was build a 90-foot statue of gold to his own devotion. And then he commanded that the people of Israel would bow before that statue to himself. And it was for bowing to that statue that people ascribed worship. And if they failed to bow to that statue, their heads were lopped off. 
And Daniel and his friends were exceptions, of course, to this, and that they begged not to do this, and they prayed, and they come up with this amazing plan to, to get around it. Babylon's school systems had large doses of the occult and astrology. And so Daniel and his friends had three years of rigorous schooling, learning the Chaldean language, but also learning this demonic occult, how to be magicians and enchanters. Now, I came to you from Boulder, Colorado. I was in Boulder County, Colorado, land of many fruits and even more grass. So I've been told by many of you, okay? My kids went to school in the Boulder Valley Public School District. My younger boy did. And I can promise you, my older boy did, excuse me, I can promise you, on even the worst day in the Boulder Valley School District, my kids never had to study the occult. They never had to study demonic influences, D demonic forms of study, and that was required in Daniel's school in order to even get a job amongst these Jews who were now living in Babylon. Moreover, they forcibly had their names changed to reflect pagan gods. We'll get to that in a moment. Scripture doesn't say this definitively, but Daniel had no wife and no child. And these three other boys all come under the chief of the eunuchs. They become part of that school underneath the chief of the eunuchs. Most scholars would say they forcibly were made to be eunuchs. This is a no good, terrible, horrible, awful, very bad day in Babylon. For 66 years, I might add. Okay, so they escaped the lion's den. They escaped the fiery furnace, but they had this for 66 years. Babylon was the personification of evil. Even in the New Testament, when Babylon is no more, when God chooses to speak most forcefully about evil, he uses the language of Babylon. Now, how do you live in a culture like that? How do you do it? I mean, imagine being uprooted from a culture and a place that is idyllic, a beautiful, beautiful place, and you're uprooted from it, and you're placed in another place that is equal parts of the very worst of Las Vegas and Los Angeles and New Orleans and New York, the very worst of all of those places. And how do you live faithfully in such a place? As they find themselves in this new world, they're asking two fundamental questions. Number one, has God left the building, so to speak? And we'll get to that next week. And number two, the other question they're asking is, how do we live while we're in exile? How do we live now in this world that's so much different than what we're used to? I wonder how faithful I would have been in such a land. I wonder how faithful we will be when Babylon creeps in, or as culture continues to change. How faithful will we be? Again, I've only been here in Kearney 10 months, but I understand culture here has changed significantly, both on the campus and at the city at large. And as culture changes, as Babylon creeps in, how do we respond? How do we now live? There's four ways that Christians have typically responded. I want to outline those in a real quick manner, and I want to tip my hand to the one that I think uh, best points the picture of how we should respond and how Daniel responded in his context as well. The first is to fold yourself in to the culture at large, to assimilate into the broader world. 
into the culture, assimilate into Babylon. It is to reject Scripture when Scripture contrasts with the winds of culture. Or skim over those passages of Scripture that you don't really like or that you find inconvenient to this new way of life that you are now wanting to live. Entire denominations are doing this today. Entire denominations are rejecting certain portions of Scripture because they disagree with the cultural definitions of sexuality or marriage and divorce. Families do this when families choose not to take seriously Jesus' teachings on marriage and divorce. Teens do this when they say to mom and dad, well, Johnny did such and such, why can't I? Ever get that, mom and dad? Johnny smokes dope on the weekends. Everyone's doing it. Why can't I experiment with it too? Everyone else is participating in the hookup culture today. Why can't I participate in it? Everyone else seems to be cohabiting before marriage. Why don't we? Everyone else refers to an eight-and-a-half-month-old baby in the womb as a clump of cells, a, a fetus. Why don't we? And on and on we could go. And to just capitulate to that is to fold yourself into the world, to assimilate into the world. Here's why we don't do that. In the words of Mahatma Gandhi, if you are a minority of one, the truth is still the truth. Even if you're only a minority of one person, even when it is most inconvenient, the truth remains the truth. So do not capitulate to the winds of the world as they blow in or to the winds of popular opinion, even if you're a minority of just one. Look at how Daniel and his friends did this in verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So you, you don't want to miss this. Daniel and his friends are put into this position in which they're under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar, but they say, we're under the authority of God's word, not under Nebuchadnezzar. And so we're going to follow God's word even when it's inconvenient to us, even when it means a change of lifestyle to us. And what was the change of lifestyle for them in this instance? Anyone? They became vegetarians. Some of you are vegetarians. Uh, that sounds like a bad dream to me. Uh, they, they got healthier and fatter during their 10 days of being vegetarians. That's a miracle, okay? I, I wouldn't want to try it, but it, it proves that God is, that God is real. It's a, you know, they really got healthier and fatter over the course of those 10 days. But they said, we are not going to eat what the king eats, what the king would give to us. We're not going to drink what the king would give to us. And here's the reason why they didn't eat Nebuchadnezzar's steak. Because it was sacrificed to Nebuchadnezzar's gods. And they said, if this is going to be sacrificed to your false god, we're not going to take it in and therefore imply that we believe in your false god. Therefore, we will suffer this inconvenience. And mind you, not just for 10 days, they ate vegetable and water from there on out. It was after 10 days that they were presented to Nebuchadnezzar as healthier than all the rest, but they went on to be vegetarians from there. They didn't assimilate into the context that they were living in when it was convenient for them. Instead, they laid down their lifestyles in order to be faithful to God in this very unique 
setting. They sacrificed what they could have enjoyed to maintain a distinct voice. And friends, people are begging for you and me to maintain a distinct voice in our culture. They're begging for it. When we hear, as we oftentimes do, you Christians look no different than anyone else. You talk no different than anyone else. You live no differently than anyone else. What that is is a silent cry to provide something different, to provide an inspirational portrait of what life really could be because we are living in the unshakable kingdom of God in which Jesus is king and we are following him and therefore we are offering the world a view of something that is beautiful and holy and different and righteous and loving and pure. And some, of course, will respond to that and they say, I, I don't want that. But many other people are saying they're begging for something that is different. That's one false way to respond. Just fold yourself into culture. Another false way to respond is just to be a fortress. Just to kind of withdraw from culture and to hole up. It's kind of the frozen chosen mentality. Two, four, shut the door. We don't want any more. Thank you very much. That mentality, kind of a rabbit hole Christian, that I don't ever go out into the world. I'm neither in the world nor of the world. Instead of what Jesus said in John 17, we are in the world but not, we're not of the world, but we are in the world. So we have to choose our spots and our times and our places to go be an influence for good. Not to be a fortress that hides away, but an influence for good. The problem with rabbit hole Christians is they make no influence on Babylon. They're not salt and light. Moreover, the problem with rabbit hole Christians is they're frequently living in fear. And friends, we in the unshakable kingdom of God have nothing to fear. I don't fear anyone or anything because Christ is my king and I know where I'm going and I pray you feel the same way. A third way is to act like a force, to get busy fighting, to go into battle, to take the city back, to fight back and win over the culture, to overthrow Babylon. And again, wisdom is required in all of this because there are times that we do need to withdraw from the evils of the world. There are times that we need to teach our kids how to separate themselves from things that are evil. There are times for that. And there are times that we do need to fight back. But it's really amazing and we're going to see this again and again as we look at Daniel and as you look in the Gospels. Daniel did not fight for the overthrow of non-Christian America. He didn't. He didn't fight for the overthrow of non-Christian Babylon. And neither did Jesus. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. So he sought influence here in this world, knowing always that we will be strangers and exiles to some degree here in this world. And so Daniel and his friends sought influence rather than battle. They chose not to eat the food or drink the drink, but again, it's fascinating, they did take on new names. And these new names, if you look at verse 7 in your Bible, it says, the chief of the eunuchs gave them these new names. Daniel, a nice Jewish name, he called Belteshazzar, one of the leading gods of the Babylonian pantheon was a god named Bel. Daniel's name comes from that. It's Bel follower, paying homage to the god Bel, 
The false god Bel. The same thing well, with the other three boys. It's believed that their names pay homage to the false god Marduk. Hananiah, a nice Jewish name, he called Shadrach. Mishal, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. I don't know about you, but, but if someone was to change my name to Allah man or Krishna boy, those would be fighting words, wouldn't they? I mean, those would be times that I put up my fists and I fight. Why didn't Daniel and his friends fight there? Why did they take on these new names? I think it's because they were more concerned with God's name than their own names. They were more concerned with honoring God with their lifestyles than anything any person could do to their names or their bodies. They sought desire and influence. They desired influence, not battle, during their years of exile. So also, the prophet Jeremiah says, when you go into exile, when you go into Babylon, this is how you're to act. Jeremiah 29, verse 7, he says, seek the welfare of the city of Babylon that I am calling you into exile. Pray for its welfare. Seek its welfare. Seek its prosperity. Seek its blessing. For in its welfare, so also you will have welfare. What Jeremiah is saying there, same thing Daniel does, is call us to be a countercultural influence for good, not seeking the battle motif, but seeking to influence those around us, even those who differ greatly from us. Not battle against our city, influence on our city. That's what God invites us to. The final option, and the one that I think we need to go after, and Daniel will point us to, is to be a fragrance. To distinguish yourself as the aroma of Christ. To be a fragrance wherever you might live. 2 Corinthians 2 puts it this way. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. To one we are the fragrance from death to death. The other we are the fragrance from life to life. And some will respond to the fragrance of life and other people will not respond to that very same fragrance, and none of that is your responsibility. But it is our responsibility to be the fragrance of Christ to any that we encounter, not so much fighting against people, but looking for opportunities. The culture changes all around us, looking for opportunities. How can we see Carney as our mission field that God loves? How can we see the world around us as this mission field that God loves and he would call us to? How can we see people not so much as those that we battle, but people that we would seek to influence as they also are made in the image of God and so valuable to God that Christ Jesus himself died for them too? You see, the problem with seeing people as a battleground, the problem with seeing people as those to overcome, even politicians, the problem with seeing people as a battleground is it's really difficult to love people that you're battling. It's really difficult to serve people that you're battling. And I want to love people that disagree with me. And I know you do as well. We want to serve those who disagree with us, even those who represent ideas that are vastly different than the ideas of Scripture. We love those who would be opposed to what we believe. So in the next seven weeks, we're going to see that Daniel was this rare leader a man of courage and conviction, a man of humility and hope, a man of wisdom and a man of prayer. 
And the way he lived was so powerful that it created such an influence over the course of 66 years in this wicked foreign land that three kings and untold numbers of leaders in Babylon, to some degree, bowed their knee to the God of Israel. How was that so? It's because Daniel and his three friends and so many others, they looked differently, they acted differently, they spoke differently, maybe even from all those vegetables, they even smelled a little bit differently. I don't know. But they were different. They were the fragrant aroma of Christ. And so listen to these summary statements at the end of uh, a number of different places in Daniel chapter 1. That, that, that speak to the incredible influence that they had. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Then verse 17, As for these four youths, God gave them earning, learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. They're different. And then verse 20, And in every matter of wisdom and an understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. He's such an incredible model for us of being different, of staying against culture at times, yet at the same time loving even those who would be opposed to him. And this is so incredible for us, such a great model for us today, because as you know, in many parts of our country today, Christianity is now totally marginalized. And in every part of our country today, the public face is no longer Christian, be it in politics or in media or in uh, Hollywood or in academia. The public face is no longer anything with a Christian worldview. And that will increasingly come here to Kearney, Nebraska as well. And we might be able to hold it at bay to some degree, but here's the deal. As it increasingly comes here, I am not going to despair because God's bringing a new day and new opportunities in the midst of that as well, in which we get to be the fragrance of Christ no matter where we might live. And to some degree, it will be sad that the old common worldview that we could expect is, is going away, and we can't expect government or broader community or our neighbors to always agree with us. To some degree, that will be sad, but let me tell you, it won't all be bad. It won't all be bad. Because as that happens, and as it's happening even right now, you know what happens? The chaff of cultural Christianity blows away in the wind. The, the tassel at the top of the corn is detasseled, and then that beautiful ear of corn can emerge, of authentic, true, real Christianity can shine with brightness and be a difference maker for good. The fruit is able to emerge. And that's exactly what happened in ancient Judaism at the time of Daniel and his friends as the top of the corn was detasseled and the corn began to emerge and a beauty began once again in Judaism. And I trust that God's going to do that even in this day. This is no time for despair. I'm a person of hope. I'm a person of hope even in this day as I respond to the winds of culture because I'm not going to enfold to the culture around us. I'm not going to go away into a fortress out of fear. We got nothing to fear. I'm not going to act with force. We're not going to act with force. We are going to be the pleasing fragrance of Christ to all we encounter. To some, they'll listen and they'll be the, the fragrance 
of life. We'll get an opportunity to shine like the brightness of heavens. Shine in a very dark place as it happens around us. We get to represent Christ in a brand new way. And to that, I say amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you are still very alive and well, even in this new day that has gotten challenging and will get more challenging. We trust in you. We trust in you. We desire, Lord God, to be the fragrance of Christ as the winds of culture change. As they come in on us, we desire to be difference makers. And we ask for your help that we could look to Daniel, we could look to his three friends, and most importantly, we could look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who calls us strangers and exiles in a foreign land. We want to live for you and learn how to be more effective, more effective ambassadors for Christ in this very land that you have called us to dwell in at this time. We believe, God, you've set the times and the places that we all should live, that we would find you, that others around you would find you, and so we avail ourselves to you, asking that you would use us to make a difference starting today. In Christ's name we ask, amen.